everyone. So welcome to episode 77 of The Tarik with Wallet. And as you can see, we are in a fancy place. I don't know whether... Oh yeah, you cannot see everything. But it's fancy enough. Fancier than my normal setup. So we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Jamie Ho. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for, for doing this. He's the editor of Straits Times. Uh, even if you don't know him, there is no escaping his influence because Straits Times permits uh, the lives of Singaporeans, right? So... Jamie, first of all, thank you for doing this yeah, and thank, thank you. you for the Titari as well. No, no, so, so it's legit Titari. Firstly, sorry for postponing this. Was, oh, no, don't worry, don't worry. I'm, I'm happy. But because uh, we postponed, we ruined your Valentine's Day. La, so <laughs> sorry for everybody. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's happy the best way to celebrate Valentine's. Yeah. So when I I put on Instagram that I was hosting you, so I asked people for questions and there were a lot of questions. Right? I think it's the most number of questions I've got. Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. Most yeah. number of questions so far. And th- there are basically two or three main themes, two or three main questions. And the number one question is basically non-independence of the Straits Times, which you get all the time, I'm sure, right? So so help us understand this, right? How how does this work, right? this relationship? So is there actual censorship or is it self-censorship or is there none of the above? Like last time when we were growing up, you know, there, there's this urban myth, right? Which is a myth, you know, but a lot of older people maybe still believe that, that the Minister of Information will read the newspapers before it's published mm-hmm. or so on. But how does it work? Do you get a call or do ministers come to no the la, newsroom? Okay. And, so so that, yeah. there, there are two parts to your question, right? Yeah. Uh, the first part, is there censorship? No, don't be silly. No, la. There, there, there is no censorship. I don't think people have the time for that anyway, even if they wanted to. So no, there's no censorship. Uh, if you want to talk about the other part of the question about the independence, I think that's something that we've lived with. For many times, for, for a long time, people always ask us a question. The newsroom, for sure, would like to believe that we are as independent as we can be, right? But obviously, newsrooms all exist in very uh, specific contexts, right? Uh, if there are 150 newsrooms in 100 different, 150 different communities and societies and countries, we have 150 different types of ways of working, and we are just one of them. Uh, and we can have specific discussions on, on how we work with the government, how we work with different stakeholders. It's not just the government, right? All newsrooms will have different relationships with government, with private sector, with NGOs, and we all have a different kind of relationship with each other, mm. right? And it's a fluid relationship. We listen to them, they listen to us. Uh, sometimes they have feedback for us, sometimes we have feedback for them. But whether or not it, it, it translates into what people may think is censorship, I think that's no lie, that there isn't any. Mm. Why is there such a a prevailing belief then that there is actual censorship. No, no I, I think I think what people will, if they want to have a discussion about what is the government influence on us, I think that's fair enough discussion. Mm. Uh, but I but to to go into the realms of actual censorship, I think that's that's putting it a bit too far. Mm. We can have discussions about the quality of journalism. Again, that's fair. We can, right. we can talk about specific stories. Why did we do it this way? Why did we write this headline this way? Why did we approach this story in another way? Those are, those are fair enough and mm. we are happy to do it. Um, now, there will be perceptions that we lean one way or the other. Again, I think we can have discussions about that. But again, if we go back to how Singapore evolved, uh, the Straits Times is going to be 180 years old very soon. Yeah. It's history longer Congrats. than independent Singapore. Yeah. But if you look at how Singapore has evolved since 1965, right, uh, as an independent country, Straits Times together with it, um, obviously, there will evolve a certain relationship between the government and the paper. Uh, people used to call us the paper of record. There will be a relationship. You cannot deny it. And this relationship is something that has evolved over the, all these years too. And, and, and I would like to believe some of it comes from, yes, a certain degree of trust 
uh, from both sides. Uh, again, there's no point um, denying it. All right. Um, if you look at any statistics out there, there's a high degree of trust in the media. Of course, we will say it's quite low compared to what you would like it to be. Yeah. But if you look internationally, whether it's the Reuters Institute or whatever it is, there's, there's still quite high yeah. trust in, in mainstream media and the Straits Times of Singapore. If you look at other measures of trust in the government and society's trust in the government, it's also quite high. Higher than most places yeah. you would, right? So when you look at that as a whole, it actually frames the, 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 the tone of the relationship between us and the government. Now, people may say that therefore that is translated to and you can say that some degree of influence, there's censorship, there is whatever. I think that's, that's pushing it too far. But if you want to say that, yes, yeah, so how did we come to this relationship? I think that's a good discussion to have. We may not have enough time for it, but I would say that it is very unique to us. Right. Okay. Thank you. And it's true, you know, the Edelman Trust Barometer mm. Index, you know, Singapore features quite highly. So, so okay. So you've debunked this, this myth, right? That ministers will tell you what to write or what to print, right? Uh, so. No, but, that, but again, as I yeah. said, that, that doesn't mean that they don't have conversations with us. Of course, us. of course. And that, I think, that happens I think all the they, time, they, right? They should, right? Yes. Exactly. They should have exactly. those conversations, yeah. right? And what about, uh, self-censorship, like, on the part of journalists, especially younger ones? Yeah, I, I don't, again, Self-censorship is in the eye of the beholder. I'll be very honest with you, right? Uh, what I may sort of explain or defend as extra levels of checks, extra levels of verification, extra level of caution and conservatism in what we put out there. If, if I say, hey, this one, can we just take another day or two? We really need to verify this because our standards are slightly different from other people. Let's say, I may say, let's take two days to do this. We really need to get this right. We need to get people's views on this A, B, C, D, E. And if it means two days of a delay, how are you going to read that? You can read it as, oh, self-censorship. But I'll say, no, I, I think we hold ourselves to slightly different standards. That's one way to explain it. Um, because, you know, every newsroom makes editorial judgments. Again, as I said, you have 100 different newsrooms. They have 100 different ways of making editorial judgments. Some may see that one is different from the other in the name of something else. To say that it's self-censorship, I think it's slightly unfair, but it's a discussion worth having. Um, and it's quite often you have to do it on a case by case and a story by story basis. I would like us to have an open enough relationship with our readers, for example, to say, hey, by the way, why did we cover a particular story this way? Why did we do this three days later than someone else? And yes, let's discuss it. But I don't think we need to start off on the basis that it is censorship or self-censorship. I don't think that's, oh, that's right. Okay. Thank you. So one of the criticisms, you know, by people like, uh, Bertha Hansen mm. is that, you know, a lot of Straits Times articles look like government press releases, right? So what, how would you respond to that when people... Say I'll say this. I think we underestimate the size and the, the sort of looming presence that governance has in Singapore. Let's be honest with you. The number of press releases that we get, the number of government policy announcements that we get, the number of... It, it, the size of our government is larger, getting mm. larger. The place that it has in our society is getting larger. It's not getting any smaller. Mm. If you look at it, and what does it mean for the news cycle? Right. It means that there's a ton of things coming out, right? And let's be also be honest. Again, going back to the, to the question of trust, most people, when you read a government press release, including in the newsroom, has a certain degree of trust that it is kosher, that they're not pulling a fast one, right. that there's no agenda, there's no, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that you see in other places. Yeah. So when you put that all together, and a newsroom is faced with this barrage of news, and this is news which we need to put out to our audiences, right? And with finite resources, I would, I would dare say less resources than we used to have in the past, 
how do we put this out in our audiences, right? So of course you can have an argument that hey, this looks like a government press release. I said, yeah. I mean, in a way, I I won't I won't uh, deny some part of it, but there's just so much of it, and to give it the due sort of um, recognition, sometimes yes, sometimes the language is a bit clunky. I admit, we can do better. The government can do better. We can do better editing. We can do better writing. We can improve as journalists. All this is fair. I, I accept it. But to say that just because we are, it is it, like that, and it becomes de facto negative, I think that's unfair. Mm. Um, so I think. By and large, as as the as the the government becomes um, increasingly larger in that sense, yes, a lot of things that we do. I mean, I, I will try and I hope to do fewer write ups of uh, government press releases and stuff like that because there are so many and, and we will have to manage that. But when we do when we do do it, so long as people trust that we have verified it, we trust the government to have to be able to stand behind it. And if it sounds like a government press release, well. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Hmm. So one of the one of the questions uh, hmm. that I got in was was Straits Times uh, coverage of Simply Go, for instance, right? So yeah. so people were saying like, uh, oh, if Straits Times actually had actually interviewed people and given hmm. more perspectives, then maybe we would have gotten perspectives on the ground more. What, what perspective what which were before it was the LTA announcement or after the LTA right, announcement? Right. So before. Again, this, that's a good question. What is our role in sort of reflecting mm. ground sentiment? Mm. I would like to believe that yes, indeed, our role is to reflect ground sentiment. Um, and in this particular case, I think we did reflect ground sentiment uh, after uh, LTA made the first announcement about their plans. And that's why it created a groundswell of uh, reactions. And that's why what led to whatever eventually happened. But the question then is, could we have done anything pre that, right? It basically helped LTA along the way, I suppose that's yeah. the question. Could we have helped LTA along the way to understand the ground right. feeling? Fair enough. I think that that's something that we can look into. Um, then maybe there's a way for us to discern whether this is a small percentage of the population, yeah. whether it is a larger percentage of the population. But he, I think it raised a good question because it is not a question just of simply go. It is a question of us being able to reflect the broad uh, spectrum of our society and especially those who may be slightly silent, those who may be in a minority and those who may feel left behind in uh, this digital push. Yeah. Right? And we have been trying to do it as far as we can. Um, it's not just simply go. There will be other areas, right? People who, who might like to take a step back from this relentless sort of digital push who may like to write checks, for example, right? Mm. Some people who say, oh, my digital banking, do I really have to do everything digital banking? I think we have done that. Um, um, so it is something that we are fully mindful of. And if we can do better, sure, we're happy to, to explore it and, and see how our journalists can get closer to the ground. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. That's for the record. I want to I say that none of my forum letters have ever been rejected by Straits Times. <laughs> Long may that continue. So uh, at least since, since I took this position. So uh, one of the one of the things that you will always be judged by is how the other outlets are doing, right? So this is other mainstream media uh, and other uh, online media. So we will get to online media in a while, but you are uniquely positioned mm. because you know CNA very well, right? right? Yeah. And people always compare Straits Times to CNA and they say, mm. oh, look, CNA is uh, what, uh, even under the most difficult conditions, you can still produce good journalism. People say, oh, Straits Times uh, is, is not. Do you think that's a fair criticism? No. <laughs> uh, 
to to due respect to my former colleagues at CNA, <laughs> we did good work there. I think we do good work here as well. Uh, it is just done differently, with a different heritage, with a different type of newsroom, and the Straits Times newsroom is also one that's evolving. But in terms of the sheer depth and breadth of our Singapore-related coverage, I think the Straits Times does better. Mm. It's just because of the way the newsroom is structured. The, straight, the CNA digital newsroom is quite different from us. The CNA broadcast newsroom is even more different from us. So I wouldn't compare. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I, I am not um, uh, one who would compare across our competitors in that sense. I believe we all have a space. Mm. Uh, I think if we did it well enough, there is enough space for a CNA and a ST to push each of us to higher standards. Oh, so and keep so an eye on us, each other, um, to make sure we both do well in our own respective spaces towards the, the larger audience. Is it different audiences, you think? Or? I don't think so. I, I mean, from, from, from surveys that we can see, there are slightly different audiences, but I would like to believe that there are some overlaps as well. And then one of the things that CNA has the benefit of is people know that it is free. Uh, so mindsets have set, but uh, uh, ST people have mindsets that a lot of stuff is behind the paywall, for example. So these perceptions persist, and we will try our best to make sure that at least we can explain why uh, the paywall exists, but I, I would rather not talk about so, CNA. Fair enough, uh, fair enough. So, so maybe maybe that question also was yeah. was too direct in terms of comparing mm. to one. Uh, but what about online media where uh, a lot of people say, oh, I cannot trust Straits Times, right? Then uh, yeah. they go to online media, but sometimes they go to online versions of Straits Times articles. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but uh, they, there, there are others, you know, just independent websites, no, yes. not even traditional I, journalism. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I look at what you call competitors and other people in the landscape, I, I don't automatically see them as competitors. I think with the, the Singapore ecosystem, as far as the news media is concerned, is small enough that everyone does have a space. Whether you are mainstream, whether you are mothership, whether you're whoever else it is, everyone has its space. And the, 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 the trick for Singaporeans in general is to know what each, other, each one of them does and to be able to verify, trust the different degrees, check where you need to check. The main competitor in which I am actually more concerned with is a larger competitor. And that's time. Uh, all of us still, no matter who we are, whether you're CNA or whether you're Straits Times, our main competitor is time mm. of the, our audiences. We're competing against far more than we anybody used to compete against. And then you need to keep an eye on that. What are people doing? What are people watching? What are people getting entertained by? What are they reading in the, in the name of infotainment, for example, but believing it's news? What are people subscribing to in Netflix or not? Are they pulling back on their subscriptions? What does it mean for us? So th th there's a far larger dynamic that we have to keep an eye on in terms of competition um, for, for time. And that is something which I'm very mindful of. Yeah, so that's that's a good uh, segue to the next point, right? Because print media is dying in throughout the world, right? Mm. So in spite of the resources invested into street yeah. times, it's just a technological thing. People do not. So mm. have you had conversations, serious conversations about, is there a day where street times will not be printed? Then? Let, let, me, let me tell you, let me ask you a question. Have you watched this movie called uh, News of the World? No, I it's a Netflix movie. It's called News of the World. The main character is Tom Hanks. Okay, uh, the actual plot is is secondary, but his character is a very interesting one. This is uh, post uh, Civil War United States in Texas. He makes his living going from town to town with his little horse and his carriage and all that, reading the news. He makes his living reading the news off the newspaper or whatever it is to little groups of people 
uh, in these little Texas towns. And they pay 10 cents and he sits there and he reads the news of the day. Uh, he embellishes it, he makes it a bit more dramatic, but people pay to read the news. But he's reading it off something. Mm. And in, in that particular period, the, the, the mode of the transmission, the medium was him riding on his horse. Over time, this mode and this medium will evolve, as you are discussing now, right? We're talking about how this evolves over time. So first you had that, then you had the telegraph, then you had print, then you had broadcast. The broadcast one was the one that changed things for a lot of people. Broadcast radio, broadcast TV, then you had the internet. Now we are where we are. So at one stage in time, yes, audiences will evolve. The mode and the medium will evolve, and print is one of them that will evolve as well. What does not necessarily change is the content and what is being conveyed via that mode and that medium. And the Straits Times is far more than the print. Print obviously is a big part right. of, of our heritage. It's something that we hold very closely. It's something that still serves a vast majority, a vast population in Singapore. We should not underestimate mm. it. It still have a place. But it's just one of the modes and mediums that the Straits Times has. And if I were to give you a sense of the modes and the mediums that we sort of cater to and keep in mind, it ranges from one end to the other. Let me explain. One, messaging. Messaging is becoming more and more important tool in which we get our news out there, whether it's Telegram or WhatsApp. And as we were discussing earlier, they even have different audiences on Telegram and WhatsApp. Younger generations are on Telegram. Podcasts, as we are doing now, newsletters, as we are doing now. And then you go into our website. And even our website, there are different variants of it. There's your desktop, there's your mobile web, there's your mobile app, all have very different experiences for the reader and our content will have to fit, be fit for purpose. Mm. Then you have other things as well. Then you have obviously your print. And if you look at it in terms of that spectrum, we need to be in all of them because we are the Straits Times and we need to be mindful of the audiences that each one of these modes and mediums service and serve. And I would say that therefore, yes, if you look at it globally, um, a lot of print publications are in trouble in the sense of both revenue as well as audiences and there is a steady decline in the number of people who read the print publication. But I would like to believe that again as I said there, there is a segment of our population which still relies on it. There is still experience that the print can provide that you don't see anywhere else. right? The sense of curation, the sense of completion, the sense of, sense of placement how we treat certain stories and where, I think that has a value for a certain generation. Um, and so long as they still value it and it still makes sense, we will continue servicing it. And as to whether or not the print product evolves as well, that's a discussion that we will have uh, in parallel. Mm, okay, thank you. So, I mean, it's, it's also related. I mean, young people probably will not be buying that. Mm. I mean, I've also heard uh, older people saying, right, why, why should... What's the value add now? Right? What's the value add of Straits Times that I cannot get from other mainstream or online media, right? Why should people pay for it? Like, what's what is it? What's the it factor of Straits Times? The the Straits Times uh, has a um, privileged position and a burden, okay, and it's something that we don't take lightly. We actually are. Um, Many things rolled into one. Let me explain. For example, we are in a weird way a village newspaper, right? In that we are a small community or a small society, we have that we, have, we need to be able to reflect that ground up feeling. 
We are also a small country newspaper. We are Singapore's a small country. We need to, so we are a national paper as well. We are a local paper. Uh, we are also an international paper because we are in English, and we are a regional paper because we cover the region as well as we do. So we are, in a way, all things to everyone. Most other publications, uh, unless you are public service broadcasters, don't have that kind of overwhelming uh, sense of all your audience. So the value that I see that the Straits Times has is a firstly in in terms of our local coverage, in our local knowledge, in the experience of our journalists, uh, is quite unparalleled, right? Uh, that's one. Two, because we are we serve such a wide audience, or we like to believe that we serve such a wide audience, our role as the how would you say it, the protector of the mainstream middle is something that you should not diminish in value. Can you elaborate? That's where the term mainstream media comes from. What is the mainstream? Basically, not only are you conveying what is meant to be mainstream, you're meant to be reflective of the mainstream, right? That is what keeps us grounded and not sort of pulled to one extreme or the other as you see what happens in other countries in terms of uh, polarization mm -hmm. and publications having one very extreme political leaning or the other. We are mainstream, but I don't particularly like that term as much because it really doesn't mean as much as it used to mean. Right. So I like to see as really we are reflective of that this broad mainstream middle, that not only do we reflect it, I would like to believe in that the way we tell our stories, the way that we project ourselves also seeks to protect it a little bit um, in terms of modeling that kind of, what kind of discourse does Singapore need to have? When you see the kind of polarizing discourse that is happening other places in other countries, and sometimes here in Singapore as well, there's so much polarization, there's so much, it's either A or it's B, it's so black and white, it's so extreme. But the Straits Times, the value that we have is that people must know that we are trying to build that middle, protect that middle, and therefore, when you read us, this is our best effort at reflecting that. Now, because of the fact that there is some degree of polarization and differing views, how we do that gets more and more difficult, right? right? Because there'll be more and more criticisms, yeah. and your space in the middle may not be growing, right. but we will protect it. That is our job, um, for lack of a better word, um, as mainstream media. Hmm. So that's that's very fascinating to me, right? So because, first of all, for every issue, there will be different middles, right? So, yes. so you have to protect different... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different, uh, so then the second one is, uh, what is what was fringe eventually becomes mainstream, right? I, I mean, maybe yes. 20 years ago, the idea of minimum wage was yeah. a fringe idea, yeah. right? Becomes, so how do you deal with that? As exactly. National, yeah. So, so that, that, that's the thing. Again, we, we must not expect, and audiences uh, should not have that unrealistic expectation that we are perfect and that we are perfect mirror at every stage in time. We are also human beings. We are a newsroom which works on best endeavors uh, processes, right? And we will try to be reflective as much as possible. Sometimes in the eyes of a majority or in the eyes of a minority, we may get it wrong, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then we will find ways to correct it. That's yeah. what a, a healthy newsroom needs to do. It's a process. The minute you, you, you believe that I'm set, this is my mandate, this is my audience, this is my, then that's where polarization has already happened. The very fact that you have these skirmishes on the side is reflective of the fact that we're trying our best. Mm. Uh, in a more and more complicated uh, news environment. So, yes, on the one hand, as, 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 as you say, mainstream changes, sort of society moves along, we must move along as well. Uh, and we need to keep ourselves grounded, be aware of what's happening. Now, the question then is, do we follow these trends? Do we reflect these trends? Do we get ahead of these trends? Yeah. Or do we fall very significantly far behind?
Right. I don't think I don't think firstly we, we we should fall very far behind. That's for sure. Should we be at the forefront of it? I don't think we need to be at the forefront of it as well. So in that space, we need to find our way to be reflective of, but respectful of the broad, as I said, uh, the broad middle. So you don't see Straits Times as the thought leader in society. It's more reflective of the mainstream middle rather than. Good shape. question. Good question. I think uh, there is probably some degree of thought leadership. But let me devil's advocate with you. Get your view on this as well. In all publications, there's always some degree of thought leadership. We are the ones setting the agenda. And this is very um, typical of traditional newspapers, uh, like the New York Times, let's say, 50 years ago. Yeah. All the news that's fit to print, we set the agenda, yeah. right? And we will drive the national debate, the national conversation. Then you have a different model. You have the public service broadcaster model, let's say, who actually are not in that mode of doing things, right? BBC didn't really get born doing that. Yeah. You know, more reflective. You're more broad based. Yeah. Obviously, then you are you you have a sort of um, new news environment where it's so polarized now that you have thought leadership in every single polarized point of society in other places. My view is there will always be a space for opinion and certain degree of thought leadership, but I think the space for that is getting harder because society is precisely because it is polarizing. That if you're gonna thought leadership on one point, you better be careful that you're doing it right, right? right? Because you, 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 people put the Straits Times up on a certain level of credibility that you must maintain that middle space, right? And if society itself is not moving as quickly as possible on a broad middle, then it, it gets a bit tough for the Straits Times to choose. Oh, I'm going to be a thought leader on this issue. Yes, we're going to be a thought leader. For example, if we can analyze certain things better, for example, our correspondence in one country or other, if we have uh, a correspondent and we have many correspondents who are very experienced, who Salma Halik has been covering health for 30, 40 it's years. Amazing. Yeah. She has yeah. she has a certain degree of gravitas. She can, her opinion matters. Yeah. Her thought leadership matters. Yes, that one we can. Right. Right. But we need to be very careful how we wield this responsibility that we hold. Right. We, we cannot be willy-nilly about it because that is how you know, things become too opinionated in other news publications. When opinion suddenly becomes far more important than the bare facts um, is when I think um, discourse sort of uh, degrades a little bit. Uh, agreed. You know, I, I saw this, you know, in the a lot of Western media outlets, they abandon objectivity and neutrality, mm. or at least any semblance that they still have yeah. left, you know. Let, let, me, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example, yeah, right? Please, uh, uh, because... Uh, I know the broadcast media a little bit. If you look at how certain broadcast uh, public uh, newsrooms have evolved, what is their money-making time belts? It's usually, let's say, 7 p.m. to 10, 11 p.m. Right. That is, uh, if you look at the traditional U.S. broadcast, and that's where people sit down and listen. Yeah. Over time, the 7 to 11 time belts have become 100% opinion. That's what people right. pay for. That's what advertisers pay for because right. they know that people are gravitating towards it whether it's Fox, whether it's MSNBC, yeah. those are the time belts where you have your talking head sitting yeah, there yeah. and extemporizing your opinion, your thought leadership yeah. thought leadership in their view. And that's what drives their viewership. That is one extreme example. Is that healthy for society at a large? I will not comment on them, but I'll just say that as far as the Straits Times and Singapore is concerned, I don't think that's our role, right? I don't think that is healthy for our society. Um, and so th there is a certain degree of you know, moderation that I think is needed for most other places and I am one for, for moderation. Hmm. What, what if someone says the 
one of the causes of polarization is when actually people do not trust mainstream media and that's when you have yes yes you know charlatans or even not charlatans like well-meaning people but they don't have the same amount of resources yeah. and then they they become more popular right fair so enough yes what what if that happens to the straight times is straight times is seen as too mainstream media exactly i mean but 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 i think but it, i i don't think we'll get there hmm. um i think if if you look at again if you look at um surveys around the world that compares to straight times where the trust levels while we would always like it to be higher who doesn't want it to be higher you compare it globally we are actually not we're in pretty good place okay that on the one hand while again people have always found um cause to criticize the media and the journalism that's our lot in life that's why we do what we, I mean, it's not why we do what we do but we sort of you know it's, it's comes extra, with the job it's, it comes with the job um so that's what we deal with but you know i i don't think it is um it is something that we we deal with um but i'm, I'm not sure we will the that does affect us that, hmm. that they affect how we do our would, jobs would the way to prevent polarization is to be the neutral arbiter and allow for all sorts of instead of just playing that role of mainstream middle but we will allow fringe voices but we will allow them equally as well fair enough that, that there's a discussion that we can have uh we can see how we do it um the question is how give an example how we do it so for example increasingly and again shout, shout out to print sometimes print has ways of doing this that uh other uh, mediums can't so for example we put out in our opinion pages two opinion pieces that reflect two slight or two sort of slightly different points right. of view right on a particular issue yeah. we can put it in print one side here one side there and then you read and then you make up your mind so people oh, understand what's happening i think that's a fair enough thing that we can do uh but again that's only can happen that can only happen in print because if you put it online there's no way you can do it uh one may be read more than the other one may not be as read one may be misinterpreted that happens a lot on social media but whether or not i uh, there, there is a space for us to put out competing points of view i think there is but i will say this it demands a lot of skill a lot of creative creativity in the newsroom and some degree obviously some uh, courage because how do you do it do you fall into a false equivalence it's yeah. very easy to fall yeah, into yeah. false equivalence and we've of seen course. all the negative things that have happened in false equivalence in the bbc and brexit is a perfect example of people mm. saying hey you know let's let's give it equal cover and that's how in some people will argue bad things happen when you allowed two sides of argument equal space and in fact one more than the other sometimes that one that you gave equal cover to actually didn't deserve equal cover because mm. it was based upon misreadings misinterpretations or sheer misinformation that's what happened with brexit some people will say and the bbc god bless them some will say again in their efforts to provide that kind of impartiality provide 50-50 coverage when actually in the heart of hearts if they were asked to replay it would you give 50-50 is is out for debate i would say sometimes again the journalist journalism is not an a science it's an art we will make judgment calls sometimes we may get it right sometimes we may get it wrong um but when we get it right we will must know where we why we did it and when we get it wrong we also must explain what we did so i think it will always be on a case by case basis how we see particular issues how do we make sure that different points of view are put across without being without falling into this trap of false equivalence right so let's let's explore that a little you know mm. so because uh, brexit as an example right and we can extrapolate it to mm. singapore so i was in 
London at that mm. point in time. I was living there, so you know we get we get a vote. So I was I was a remainer. Okay. Wanted uh, the UK to remain, but yeah. Don't you think when when journalists uh, or the media say that okay, we cannot give both sides right because mm. we think one side is more right than the other right mm. on a, an issue like this when. Fifty-two percent of the country, or whatever it is, believes otherwise, right? Mm. Don't don't you think there is a tinge of elitism yes, in that? Yes, agree, right? Agree, hundred percent agree that we must not also fall into the trap of elitism mm. to say that we know best, right? Okay, and again, it is a tough job, but I'll, give, I'll explain to you how uh, I, I see it. If you see how the traditional media evolved, whether it's the print or the traditional broadcast, it was always a one-way street. Yeah, in that. The New York Times or wherever it is publishes it, all the news that's free to print, here it is. I tell you what's important, I tell you why it's important, deal with it and read it. And most people sort of accepted that relationship. Same thing with broadcast. The BBC published broadcast, this is the news of the day, we, you, we are trustworthy, you listen to it and you accept it. And, and there's no feedback mechanism. That's how the traditional media evolved. And therefore, that, that, that sort of sense of trust was inbuilt. You are allowed to speak to me sometimes speak at me and I will trust you and I will listen to you. But somehow along the way, as we all know, in from the heydays of those 60s and 70s, things have evolved. People expect a little bit more from their journalists and their journalism than, than just this one-way street. Yeah. And in worst-case scenarios, it can be seen as slight elitism. Who are you to talk to yeah. me this way? Who are you to tell me what is good for right. me? Fair enough questions. Really fair enough, especially when you have the direct feedback and when you have social media where everyone is exchanging views about right. themselves as well. So that has challenged the relationship between the media and its audiences. Totally understandable. So the, the challenge for us is to accept that, see that that's what's happened. At the same time, therefore, make sure that whenever we do our stories, they are reflective of the ground, that we try our best and we explain ourselves as much as we can through little signals to show that we actually are trying, right? And sort of build on that position of trust that, okay, sometimes we need to make editorial judgment calls, but it is based upon a certain degree of trust. And then if there's, a, if there's blowback, if there's people who say, hey, why do you do it this way? We must be able to be upfront enough to sit down and explain. If we got it right, we'll explain why we got it right, or at least explain why we did it this way. If we got it wrong, at least the audiences will know that we got it wrong because we were trying to make editorial judgment for common benefit of people, not that we had willingly just try to have a position on the issue, but trying to, to to have that role of a, as I said, protector of the broad middle, right? right. Um, and I think the more we sort of open ourselves up to that kind of relationship with our readers, the better it is. Because Do you think ST has that now with the readers? I think it is, it is to be hand on heart, I think it could be much better. I think uh, it's something that I'm quite focused on. I think we do want to make sure that we be, I mean, the, the thing is that it's a high degree of trust but I want to make sure that we are relevant, uh, reflective, and reliable. Uh, oh, three Rs. Yeah, so that, <laughs> so that people can see that, hey, you know, the, the stories that we, that we write are not just the highbrow geopolitical analysis. but Which is still important. Which is still course, important, yeah, yeah. yes, but we, we cannot be all that. Of course. Of we course. need to do the things that actually reflect people's day-to-day -day right. lives and their day-to-day -day concerns. Uh, and that's how we build that degree of trust that, that sometimes we, we know what, what you're going through, right? And we're not just here to educate you or inform you. We're here actually to feel with you and right. to reflect your, your concerns. So this emotive part, you think, yes. is important in raising the trust in straight time? I think so. I think so because 
again, if you go back to the the traditional modes of all these traditional uh, publications, journalists have always been this. Uh, I tell you, you listen kind of relationship. Again, it, it's just the way that it's evolved. It's not it's not a value judgment at all whatsoever. Uh, but I think it can evolve. And yes, social media has forced us a little bit to do it. But especially for a publication like The Straits Times, which is representative of really the country, I think we can do more to, to sort of deepen uh, the relationship a little bit. So it's not so, you know, top down, for lack of a better word. I mean, we're here in Topayo. I like actually, I, I like the fact that we're in Topayo mm. because you, you, you are smack in the middle of the heartland. There's yeah. no reason why we can't be reflective of the heartland, but still do all the art, political news, geopolitical news right. when we need to do it. So, so that's, that's interesting, right? So that's, a balance between mm. leading and following also yeah. right, that that is needed. So, um, other than that, other than the emotive part and mm. reflective part, what else do you think Straits Times can do? Do you think if other than coming on this podcast, mm. you know, so what 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 do you think Straits Times can do to increase the trust? What from time to time publishing critical pieces of the government? Do you think that that would help? Or yes, that would generally help. But I think again, there is a slight danger to when you want to publish something that is slightly critical. Do you do it for the sake of showing that you're doing it critically? I think then that defeats the purpose. Then it becomes slightly token. Mm. We, we must be able to make very, very strong judgments right. as to when is it you need to do that. You, know, you don't want to do it just because, hey, I, 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 need, I need to sort of meet some quotient, <laughs> right? And therefore, yes, let's be critical on this issue. I, I, I think that, that diminishes your value as well. Um, as to whether or not we, we, again, this is a fair enough criticism and question. Can we a bit, bit more, uh, hard about certain things or stronger opinion on xyz yes let's have a discussion maybe there's some value in it and there's, there's some um truth in it um, but to do it just because i want to prove something I, i'm not sure i would go there mm. i think uh, you mentioned her salma's articles during COVID. I yes think that, is that a gold standard of you think that's how if any critical person it should be it should be like that you know well researched um, those yes, of, yes. I mean, I mean, again, Salma is a, is a very uh, unique um, character which is not just unique to the Straits Times but unique to a lot of newsrooms uh, whether or not we have the luxury of building up someone with this kind of expertise over 30, 40 years is an open question. Mm -hmm. I would like to believe that we have. Let me tell you a story about, about Salma's uh, um, stories over COVID. Um, Indeed, in, in recent weeks or maybe more than a month ago, we did get uh, feedback. She did get feedback uh, from, from a reader, a very uh, eminent reader, who said, you know, over the years, I've never gotten down to this, but I thank you for your coverage of COVID. Uh, during those COVID years, especially now, that, that she's able to convey all the points that she needs to convey from a certain degree of expertise and trust uh, to push on the questions that remain unanswered where you can, but not do it just for the sake of doing it. You know what I mean? There's a certain degree of uh, skill in doing yeah. that. Uh, that's not gratuitous. And that's something that he valued. And someone got it directly from this one guy, which which was very, very heartening and very heartwarming. Uh, she sent it to me. We both uh, virtually hugged each other and said, oh, you know, we, we don't get this. We, we, to be honest... We get maybe for every one thousand pieces of bad feedback, maybe one, <laughs> one, if, if barely one, some someone who says, you know, well done, thank you very much. 
So we just sort of say, well, uh, great to, to, to hear this, but it is, I would like to believe that despite all the criticisms that we might sometimes get, that there's a core of silent majority readers who at the heart of hearts still trust us, that in a moment of crisis like COVID, in a moment of uncertainty, that in a moment of, you know, I need someone to just tell me, is this real or bluff, right? Actually still trust the Straits Times. Right, I think I think that is not an unfair projection of what I think people think about the Straits Times. That we are not here, we are we do not peddle in falsehoods. We don't have an inbuilt agenda that's so obvious one way or the other. I think that is something that people value, but may not value as much as they think it, they they do. And the only way for me to tease that out is, again is is to deepen sort of our grounding with the, with our audiences. Mm. Thank you. That that was extremely fascinating. So. Off the top of your head, do you yeah. have any? Because I, I, I am thinking of one example based on what what you said earlier, the emotive uh, element. No, uh, a few days ago, the the data came out, uh, the median income and median household income it was yeah, last yeah. week. Yeah, went up. A lot of people were, what? This doesn't jive with my personal experience. Mm. And then today ran a piece. I think the the title was why this doesn't jive with people's personal experience, mm. something like that. Mm. And and was saying the difference between the median and you know personally doesn't that's a 50th percent yeah, 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 yeah. do you think those are the types of articles that would be yes this is the average experience but we acknowledge that there will be no so so again let's let's be very um again let's be very clear when the straight Times ran that story it was run based upon the statistics as that were presented by the government yeah we must be very careful and we are highly sensitive to the fact that when we report what is said, we redo it due justice. We report it as it is without editorializing. We cannot editorial, we, can, we cannot afford to do surreptitious editorializing. If the news is news, if this is said, we say as it is. Now, if separate from that, you want to make an opinion or you want to analyze separately from that, that news piece, whether or not this jives with the lived experience, we can do that. If you want to argue whether or not we can do that better, different ways, we, we sort of do profile stories, how people deal with their uh, increased cost of living and their salaries, etc. We, we can do that. Um, but to, to, be, to say that we take the data and in the very same story, editorialize and provide a slant, I think that's something that I would naturally be slightly cautious about. Hmm. You know, is I, is it, this it is, the approach to all? Because I know like some political stories, for instance, hmm. you'll have the experts uh, commenting on a particular piece of news, right? Or, or do you think those should be yeah. two separate things? One is... Yeah, I, 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 think, I, think, be, I think ideally, ideally, if we were to do justice to uh, our news readers, if we take it just on, on a day-to-day basis, news is news, opinion is opinion, analysis is analysis. If only life was so simple, right? <laughs> life is usually not so simple. So depending on the story, depending on what is said, there will be times when let's say, yeah, you do a story that is news, but if you want to inject a certain degree of uh, analysis from experts, it is clearly signposted that it is that that is being uh, analysed. Whereas if you were to meld it into uh, a mess, I think that gets a bit more complicated, a bit more uh, hard to do. Which, um, you know, I, to be honest with you, yes, that I think that there's a space for other people to do it. Fair enough, I won't judge on that. But I think the the instinct to merge uh, editorializing in news is strong because people expect that. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying, yeah. people expect to see their own uh, 
lived experiences reflected in the news. And as info bubbles get stronger and more close, the expectations of the news become stronger and stronger. You must reflect me 100%. This is not what I think, therefore it is wrong. That kind of dynamic is getting strong. I wouldn't deny it. But that's also a dangerous sentiment because our role here is not to all the time just comport to your belief systems. Where I need to report the facts, I will report the facts. Now, if, if somehow or other the facts are totally off, yes, we'll find a way to report the facts where these facts are wrong, but not automatically question them uh, just because we know that some people feel that their lived experiences are different. Hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. If, if we could uh, get a little personal towards the end. Okay. <laughs> so you are one of the younger uh, ST editors. No. Right? I mean, okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Ish. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and I think I think my predecessor became SD editor, probably younger than me, right, guys? Okay, I think yeah. so. Uh, so yeah. um, maybe w was it ten years in the industry or around there? No, no. Or, actually, that's a good question. Yeah. That's a, uh, yes, I've been uh, in the industry for now ten and a half years. Okay. So I mean, maybe s some people think you know that's a lack of experience. I I Fair think it's a, it's a good thing, right? As yeah. in because maybe you are not encumbered by. Institutional norms and thank so you, on, thank right? You, yeah. thank so, you, what, yes. what do you think? Do you think it's an advantage? Do you think it's a disadvantage? Excellent question. Um, I actually think uh, it is not a disadvantage. I think um, having spent 16 years of my life somewhere else and coming into journalism in 2013 allows me, yes, I, I like to believe that, and I would like to believe my colleagues know that I know what the newsroom is about. But at the same time, I I'm not so uh, deeply from that system that I cannot take a slightly different view, a, a, a wider view. And I would like to meld the best of my past experience and my current experience. And I, I think so far, I've, I, I think it's been quite positive that I've been able to take the outside perspective looking in into journalism because then I can make judgments, I can sort of see where journalism is going, not from a journalist perspective 100%. I can take a, a slightly different perspective and a slightly detached perspective because uh, I have that experience outside and, and I'm not so wedded to it. Mm. Okay. So when you step down, I don't know, 40 mm. years from now or whenever it mm, is, right? Mm, mm. So when you look back, right, what, what would success as the ST editor look like? For you personally, um, three uh, three things remind me that I get to the three things. Yeah. Um, one is that the day I step down, uh, I like to believe that people would still value news as a whole, not just the Straits Times. And between the Straits Times and everyone else, um, my time at the Straits Times would have contributed to a slightly better appreciation of the entire news industry and the importance of credible mainstream news uh, for all Singaporeans. Okay, if, if in some tiny way I contributed to that, I would have done a little bit and I would consider that as a success. The second part to it would be also um, newsroom based. If I'm able to, even today, I, I have no qualms, I have no uh, uh, illusions about it, Today may be my last day. Ten years time may be my last day in this in this job. If I'm able to leave and say that, look, the newsroom is a slightly better place. The newsroom has evolved in a certain way. Uh, it's a bit more collaborative. It's a bit more dynamic. It's a bit more creative. It's a bit more uh, 
in terms of culture a bit more open um, to different skill sets, different uh, talent groups, uh, I would have succeeded as well. Uh, and ultimately, a newsroom that enjoys its job uh, a little bit more than before I came, that is one measure of success. And finally, personally, I suppose, um, how to say this, the day that I leave, if I can leave in good spirits, that I've done what I've had to do, uh, and go quietly and do my whatever I want to do in retirement and just leave it all behind and fully trusting the next generation to do it, I would have succeeded. Mm. Um, and not, um, because, you know, where, when, whenever it is, whether it is 10 years from now or 10 minutes from now, the way that things are evolving in society are so fast that I must be able to trust and believe that whoever comes after me will be reflective of this new reality, right? Um, and I, the only way that I will succeed is that the next person who takes the job is able to do that and I must be able to trust them. So that's, that's uh, really interesting because people often talk about, you know, every workplace they'll talk about this intergenerational mm -hmm, mm -hmm. differences and struggle. Yes. And people talk about it in journalism a lot, especially yeah, journalism uh, in Singapore, you know. Yes. People say younger journalists. No, but it's, 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 not, it's not just the Straits Times. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. For, for anyone out there, I'll suggest that there are two books that were released late last year, one on the Washington Post, one on the New York Times, mm. one by uh, uh, Adam Nagoni from the New York Times, uh, Marty Barron from the Washington Post. Excellent books, you read it and you actually see, and I, so, I, I spent a bit of my year-end holidays reading both books, that the challenges that they face are very similar amongst each other, between each other. And if you, of course, there are such huge newsrooms and such historical newsrooms that we do see a little bit of it as well. And I'm, I'm sure and as I talk to my colleagues, every newsroom has a certain degree of that as well. The, the, the sort of generational differences, etc., etc. But again, let's not beat ourselves too much about, uh, over it because every generation of journalists is different from the last. Same thing with any profession. The only difference is that journalists are so reflective of the ground, that they're meant to be reflective of the ground, that the, the, the differences are more stark. If you look at from where I came from, the foreign service, yes, you can say that the difference between journal, uh, diplomats from one generation to another is huge, mm. right? Uh, same thing here. The, the differences in the, in the generations is huge too. Um, but it's not any worse, not any different. Right. But it gets played out a little bit more because on a day-to-day -day basis, you reflect the ground, you reflect your interests, you reflect your different sensibilities. Mm. And the, the challenge really for us as newsroom leaders is to accept that, to harness it, work with them on it and sort of come to a nice middle, right? It cannot be all old, foggy journalists leading the way. Neither can it be to expect that the young generation to be fully on board. And drive. That, I think there is a, there's a good middle that we can find where, where between the two, uh, we actually come to a much more sustainable sort of newsroom culture. Young people walk faster, but old people know the road, right? So yeah, there needs and, and, to be and, a balance. And, and, and there, has, there has to be a balance, but we must do it in a way that's not, that does not come across as tokenism. Right. Right. And, and, and just telling the young people, you listen to the old guys. It, it cannot be. We right. really have to give um, the, the space yeah. uh, and the trust for them to do it uh, and, and sort of manage at the guardrails kind of level. Right. Uh, and I think um, fundamentally then, therefore, audiences must know that that's what's happening. Audiences must know that your newsroom is evolving. Therefore, your content will evolve. 
I will tell you very honestly that there have been times when stories that my younger journalists have done which reflect their concerns, which reflect their generation and their issues and their interests, we've published it. And people will say, why is Straits Times doing this? And these are, are, are older, more established readers who've read Straits Times for the last 50 years. And look at this. What is this? This is not Straits Times. Like, come on, why are you doing this? I'm, I'm like, no, hold on a minute, right? Yes, we, are, we, we, again, going back to what I said, we reflect such a wide spectrum of our society that there will be parts of t times where people are like, you know, why are you doing this? But no, we are doing this because we think it reflects the interests of a younger generation and you should read it in that perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, you may not agree, you may not, you may not understand, but hey, this is what the young pe younger people are talking about mm -hmm. uh, in their own communities. Very uh, interesting, uh, especially when you said that this is not this generational divide is not unique to the newsrooms, but yeah. the difference mm. is it's being played out. People do not see like diplomats, younger and older diplomats, having differences, right? People yeah, do not yeah. see that. But journalism, you, you see, everybody you see, sees yeah, it. you see on a day to day basis. Yeah. You know when, and because we are so the, the newsroom is so fluid and so open. You know, a, a young journalist will have discussions with me, with their supervisor, with the editor all the time. It happens all the time. There, there's such a free-flowing flow of information that you see differences in real time. Whereas in other organizations with more established structures, the sort of mode of communication is different. Mm -hmm. You don't feel it as much in the day-to-day, -day, right? Right. Um, but it's there. Um, and and it, what we have, therefore, is both... Uh, Pro and a con, right? right. And, and, and as with all things, and I would like to believe that it's probably more pro if we harness it well. Yeah. Final question, I mm. promise you. Thank you for indulging so far. No so, uh, your, your tenure so far as editor, uh, proudest achievement, thing you regret most? Of, if the, last, any. of yes. the last one plus years? <laughs> yes. Uh, if any, you know, any, anything you thought that you could have done better or anything that you think, okay, this was, this was super. Uh, I, wow, um, I would say that as far as this newsroom is concerned, obviously because I was new to it, um, it took a while for them to get used to me too. And I would like to think that, you know, after a year plus, um, they sort of know me well enough. Um, if there's any iota of a newsroom cultural change, whether it's 0.1% or 1% or whatever it is, I'll let, I'll let my colleagues assess me on that. If there is and it is positive, that's all I ask for. And I would just like to tell them that don't worry, we are in this for the ride. Um, I set in stage uh, a process, whether with me or without me, I am confident that it will continue. Mm. Uh, that's what I'm happiest about. And I mean, this is a, a brilliant newsroom. Everyone is professional. Everyone's committed. Everyone is... Uh, you know, in it, despite, as we say, we started this conversation with a lot of criticisms and stuff. Despite all of that, I mean, they, they, they still believe in what they do. That is one of the biggest, most eye-opening things I've come to see. Uh, and if I can just help that a little bit, that's my biggest achievement, um, at least in the last one year and a bit. Biggest things that I could have done differently and better, um, Every day you can, there, there are 10 things that you have done better. Really, honestly, as, as a journalist, you, you do not know the sort of um, self-reflection that we go through, especially at, at my level and my, and my senior colleagues. Again, read those two books on the New York Times. And then and, and it's good because I also see that they go through this. Every single thing that you do, you can do better. 
every single headline that you write can be better. Every mm. single story can be, if, if, if you have time to iterate and reiterate and iterate, all stories can be better. Right? Mm. Let's be honest. The question then is, where do you say, yes, this one was really, really good have done better? Yes, there will be some of them. Some of them say, yeah, maybe, but never mind, I can live with it. If you add all these up, the strains on a journalist are quite immense. Right? If, if I, for example, look at the newspaper, I say every day, yeah, 10 things I can have done better. How do I let it affect me, right? Yeah. Um, do I say, do I go full blow and correct all of them and do some degree of self-flagellation as well as, you know, work on the newsroom? I, I, I don't think that's healthy. But, you know, um, yeah, every day there's always things that you can do better. And I don't diminish that and I don't let it uh, weigh me down as well. Right. Thank you so much. You know, uh, we started this conversation with the criticisms, but I don't yeah. think ST being criticized is the worst thing. Yeah, ST being ignored is far worse. Right? I mean, if people criticize you, I mean, at least there's some expectation still. Yeah, of yeah, in, of the yeah. Relevant. But you know, being sometimes I wish you know. Yeah, I mean, it's not pleasant. No? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I, I just wish you know, sometimes for the one thousand that you get, maybe just give me one or two. Thank you very There's much. Another, everybody, please yeah, send you know, Jamie. But, but if there really isn't that one or two thank yous, then well, you know, we, we, we'll, Jamie, we'll it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank no, you, thanks, such a thanks, fascinating man. conversation. Thank you. Hey, good, goodbye, everyone. Oh, that was